Lord, I thank you for this time that we're going to spend in your word this morning uh, in the minor prophets in the Old Testament. I pray that you would help us to understand what it is we need to know and what we need to apply. Lord, help us to always remain teachable in everything that you show us in your word. We thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so one more thing. As some of you know, my daughter likes corny jokes. And I think the last four times I've come up, most of the time she says, Papa, I have a great joke for you. Now keep in mind, it's corny. How do you get water into a watermelon? You plant it in a spring. Mariah. Okay. So if you would like to open to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. And I like, most of the time I've been up here, it's been through the Old Testament. I've only been in the New Testament, I think, once. But I like the Old Testament. And that's, the the reason for that is Romans 15.4 says... For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And I like the little lessons that each minor prophet or each different chapter of the Old Testament gives us. And I like the prophets a lot. Now, we always need to remember the lessons that have been learned in the past. We need to remember the things that God wants us to teach, that God wants to teach us that he taught them. And it's always important to remember not just to learn it, but to follow it out. And a lot of times you're making memories every time you hear a Bible study. Even if you've heard the scripture taught before, Paul says in Philippians 3 that a lot of times we're needful to be reminded of these things because we forget. Now, my... I have five kids and one on the way, and life is very busy, and it's a lot busier with five than it is with one, and a lot of times, my wife has to remind me, slow down and remember you're making memories with the kids. My youngest daughter started this thing in the house, and you've got to keep in mind that she considers herself the princess. She will come up to me at night. And she'll look at me and she'll bat her eyes and she's, she's very good at this. She says, Papa, will you carry me like a princess to bed? That's exactly what she does. And I look at her and a lot of times I've been up since about 2.30 in the morning and we usually put them to bed at 8. So I've had a long day and I'm like, really, tonight, can we, can we do it later? And my wife goes, you're making memories. I go, okay. So I'll carry them both to bed, including my older daughter. And then my youngest son comes up. Oh, and he's five, so he doesn't talk, or three, he doesn't talk clear. And so he says, Princess? I said, No, you're a boy. I'm going to do princess. (laughs) And so my wife says, Why don't you be his horse and he can be the knight? (laughs) So that's what I do. I get on all fours, and they jump on my back, carry them to bed. So just as I'm making memories with them, every time we hear a new scripture, we need to make that a memory of something we need to apply, something we need to remember. Because it will be something that in the future can be like, oh, I remember that. I may not remember the whole sermon, but you're going to remember some nugget of it. Now, my kids aren't going to remember every single time that we did something fun. But they'll remember certain important things. And I have no doubt that Hannibal will remember every time I carried her to bed as a princess and laid her down. So with that... Let's jump into Haggai. Now, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. It consists of only 38 verses, 1,138 words. Only the book of Obadiah is shorter. The book can be divided into three to five parts, depending on how you want to do it. There's about five messages. Um, Two of those messages take place on the same day. Um, Of the 12 major minor prophets, Haggai is one of the three post-exilic prophets. What that means is after the exile to Babylon, 
he was one of the three prophets that preached to Judah or the people who returned. The other two of those were Zechariah and Malachi. Scripture references Haggai two other times, one in Ezra 5.1 and one in Ezra 6.14. He is seen there with another post-exilic prophet, Zechariah. And both of them are in the ministry of rebuilding the temple after the return from Babylon. And that's the primary theme in this book. Um, and further background to this time, to this book, is in Ezra 3, 5 through 6, which we're not going to get into a whole lot of, just some of it. Now, there are some Bible scholars who believe that Haggai was actually born in Judah before the captivity. Um, this book takes place in 520 B.C. In fact, it's the only book where we have very specific dates that the prophecy took place. He says, on this day, in this time, in this year, the king. So he can, we can find out that the second prophecy took place on October 17, 520 B.C. We know the date. We, can, we know that. It's easy to look back at. But some believe that Haggai was most likely born prior to the captivity, so he would probably be around 75 years of age at this time. So building up to Haggai, here's some history. The country of Judah has rebelled against God. God warns them through several pre-exilic or pre-exile prophets that if they don't change, God's judgment is going to come, which includes 70 years of captivity. They ignore all these warnings. They're taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. There's three successive attacks on Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple was destroyed during the third attack. The reason it happened this way is because Nebuchadnezzar would do... He would attack, and then he would leave someone in charge. Okay, I'm going to leave you here. I'm going to take some people away, but you're in charge. Every person he left in charge rebelled against him. So finally he said, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. Tear down everything, the temple, everybody took everybody away, except for the very poorest in the land to basically till what was left, and there was very few people. Excuse me. So, jump forward in time about 65 to 68 years, and Daniel, which we're going through uh, on Home Fellowship on Thursday nights, Daniel reads the prophet Jeremiah and sees, hey, we're supposed to return. So, Daniel prays for the nation, and according to Josephus, Daniel confronts Cyrus of Persia and tells him, Look, you're prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, and Cyrus is mentioned twice. We just talked about this last week. And so Cyrus, in Ezra chapter 1, gives a decree saying, you're all going to return to Jerusalem, you're free to go, and rebuild that temple because the God of heaven has commanded me to do that. So about 50,000 people return out of the hundreds of thousands that are there. And that's not a whole lot. There were 50,000 people who were dedicated to return. So they get back, um, and that decree was issued in 538 B.C. So two years later, um, they're there in 536, they begin to work on the temple. After about two years, the work on that temple ceases for reasons we're going to see in a moment. And 14 years later, we find Haggai on the scene, which is where this book begins. So this is 14 years after they return, or 16, yeah, 14 years after they return. Verse 1 of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So the Persians are in charge here, and this is not the Darius mentioned in the book of Daniel. There's actually several Dariuses, as there are several Cyruses, and they're all usually ended by Cyrus I, which may be Cyrus the Great, or Darius the Great, or Darius the Incorrigible. That's not what one is, but it's something like that. So this is a different Darius. Now, Jerusalem's leaders at the time are Zerubbabel, who is the governor. He's the political leader. And he is also a descendant of the last legitimate ruler of Judah, whose name was Jeconiah. Now, Joshua was the high priest. He was the spiritual leader of the people. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? So he's asking them a question. He's asking them the time. Is it time for you to be 
upgrading your house? Is it time for you to perfect your lawn? Or And there's no lawns in it, but, you know, get the idea. They're upgrading their home. They're making it nice. If you had paneled houses back then, it was considered a luxury. So they had extra money at some point to get this paneled houses in. He's saying, oh, so you're living in luxury, but my house is living in ruin. And they were saying... You know, we know we should build the Lord's house, but now is not the time. We don't want to do it yet. Now, it's interesting how they got to this point because they knew their command was to build the house. Now, in Ezra 3 through 6, like I mentioned, we get background here. So the Jews have rebuilt the altar. They've begun the sacrifices as well, and they laid the foundation for the temple. Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, after hearing the foundation had been laid, they have some opposition. These guys are named Bishlam, Tabil, and Mithridath. These three try to prevent progress, and it's not just them. They're the ringleaders, and they do it in four ways. One is through discouragement. They're basically walking around trying to get them not to do it. They trouble their building. They make it difficult. They might you know, make it hard for them to quarry the stones or, or whatever the case may be, but they're making it difficult. They don't want them to build it. Then they hire counselors, or they hire people to walk around and kind of make trouble for them to build the temple. And the fourth thing they do is they write a letter to the king of Persia, and this is not the Cyrus who ordered them to build the temple. This is the next one. This is a Darius. And they basically tell him, look, look in the past, king. This city, this is a troublesome city. It always rebels they're always a problem. This is what they're doing. They're rebuilding the temple. And then once they do that, I bet you they're going to rebel against you and not pay taxes. So what happens is this king looks up in the records and he finds out, oh, this is a troublesome city. Maybe I'm not going to let them do this. So he commands them to stop. And without any argument, they stop. Now, there's no doubt that they faced hardship and adversity. But if we faced hardship and adversity, does that mean we should quit if God calls us to do it? And I don't believe that's the case. Now, adversity is what the apostles faced when they were preaching the gospel. They constantly were pulled in by the Sanhedrin saying, you're going to stop doing this. They were beaten several times, and yet they decided it was more important to be obedient to God than to man. In fact, that's exactly what they said. Now, I don't want to seem ignorant because it does look like they're between a rock and a hard place because the king of Persia did tell them to stop. Yet, at the same time, they could have sent a message back saying, O king, your predecessor told us to do this. We're only following his orders. But they didn't do that. In fact, they didn't even do that till 14 years later when Haggai came on the scene, and they finally did that. Now, as an example, besides the apostles... There's a missionary, or there was a missionary. Her name was Gladys Elward. She knew she was called to be a missionary in China. She knew it badly. She wanted to go. God had put a fire in her heart. So she tried to join the China Inland Mission. And this was an organization that Hudson Taylor had set up. And so she signed on, and she was going to classes to be a missionary. But the teachers in the classes said, you know what? You really don't have the aptitude for this. I don't think God has called you to go. And she said, no, no, I know God has called me to go. And they said, well, we're not convinced that you're going to be able to, so we can't have you continue with us. So they basically kicked her out. So she was thinking, okay, now what am I going to do? This is what I thought my, my in was. This is how I thought I was going to do it. So in waiting to see how God was going to do this, she got hired by a world-renowned traveler at the time, and I don't remember what his name was. But he had been to China, and she was basically his maid. She took care of his house. She took care of his children. In her free time, she studied his books on China. So she thought, okay, well, this is God's way of prepping me for China. I don't know how I'm going to get there. This is how I'm going to do it. Now, she had no money to get there. She didn't make a lot, but she saved every single thing she could. She lived her life as simply as possible because she knew God wanted her to go. So... After, I want to say it was a year, maybe a little bit more than that, she finally got enough funds for a one-way ticket to China. And it was a train ticket. And it wasn't a direct route. It was the cheapest route, which ended up being like a roundabout route through Siberia 
and then down through into China somehow. But there was a war going on at the time, and so nobody wanted her to get on the train. They said, there's no way God wants you to go through this. You shouldn't go. She said, no, I know I'm supposed to go. And she was going through a place where they were killing and raping women at the time, and she went anyway. She gets dropped off at a train station, and she's waiting for the next train, and they say, oh, yeah, that train's been canceled. Nobody goes there anymore because they're so bad during, for the war. So she goes, okay, well, what am I going to do? And they basically try to force her physically onto a train to go back. She says, no, I'm not going. And she basically, you know when your kids, you want them to do something, and they play what my family calls lead butt. <laughs> they plop down, and they refuse to move, and you're like, okay, okay fine, you sit there. That's actually what she did. She sat down and she refused to move. And they said, fine, you sit there. And she sat there for a couple days trying to decide her next course of action. She decided it was to walk. So she started walking through freezing weather at the time. It was through winter. But she said, I know God's called me. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't understand why this is the way. She eventually got to a city she was supposed to go to in China, and it was not the right place where she was supposed to meet a missionary she had met actually in England who said, oh, yeah, go ahead, come on, we'll welcome you. Well, that missionary wasn't there. They had actually gone into the mountainous regions of China. So she goes, okay. She was out of money at this point. She had nothing. But she had found another Christian missionary who said, you know what, come stay in my house. I'll take care of you until we can send you on your way. And then she, once that happened, they traveled this... Now, in China, they have these narrow pathways in the mountains. And they're probably no more than this far across. And they would have travelers on these... Not a rickshaw, but it's like um, they had bamboo poles. And they put the travelers in these big bamboo cages. And they would put them on their shoulders, and they would walk them up the mountain. And that's how they traveled through the mountain passes. And so she got in there, and I imagine it's kind of like going off-roading and a really gravelly road, only worse. But that's what she did. And she traveled that way for, for a week until she got to the city in the mountains she was supposed to get to. She met the missionary, and the missionary said, and the missionary was basically being polite in England. They didn't want her to come. They, and basically the missionary snubbed her and said, you need to go back. I don't want you here. So she's all, okay, God, I know this is where you've called me. And yet every way she turns, she hits a roadblock. Eventually, the missionary says, fine, you're not going to leave. Just stay out of my way. She, and that, this isn't even the worst part of it. There's a lot more she goes through. Eventually, she sets up these stations for the travelers on these roads. And they call it, uh, she called it the inn, inn of the Eighth Happiness or something like that. It's some Chinese phrase. It means something. But she set it up, and she eventually learned Chinese. Someone, they said, didn't have an aptitude for it. But she was diligent, and she pushed forward. And she eventually converted several of the people who were carrying people up the mountains. So these people, as they would carry them up the mountains, would talk to the people in the cages and witness to them and give them the gospel. Then they would bring them to her inn, where she would continue to give them the gospel. And her inn eventually became also a partial orphanage um, at one time. And when World War II broke out, she took hundreds of children, walked them barefoot through the jungle to escape the Japanese. Now, she was probably 30 years old by the time World War II broke out. When they finally got her to a hospital, they said she had had such a hard time, she looked like a woman of 50. That was the hardship she went through in order to fulfill a calling she knew God had on her life. And she didn't give up. And so... I'm not really being hard on Israel because I'm sure that a lot of us have done the same thing. Now, this is hard. I'll wait till it's easy, Lord. When you make it easy, I'll do it. But she stands in contrast as someone who, despite the hardship, pushed forward because she knew what God had asked her to do. Now, Israel, Judah, and when I say those back and forth, I apologize. I mean the same thing. They pretty much are. They knew they were supposed to build the temple, and they didn't do it. Now, when I say, I told, told you paneled houses were a sign of luxury, a sign of wealth. There are those who believe, Bible scholars, that what they did was once they started receiving this hardship and this tribulation from 
the opposition, they took the materials they had made to build the temple and said, you know what, we're not going to build the temple. Let's just take them to our own house. And they took them to their own house and upgraded their houses with temple materials. So instead of building God's house, they built their own. And yet even Solomon himself made sure that God's house was built before he started building his own. So when I look at us, it's not just a physical building now. It's not just this building that we would compare it to as far as application. God is building in each one of us a house. It says in 1 Corinthians that we are the temple of God. Now, we don't build up that temple, obviously, with clothes or, or anything that makes us look flashy, but we build ourselves up in the, our, our faith. We build ourselves up by studying the word and spending time in prayer daily with our maker. And that's how we build up our temple. That's how we build up our house. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we more successful in our worldly pursuits or are we more successful in our relationship with God? Now, to answer that, we need to look at the next verse. And verse 5 says this. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Now, he says this several times in this book because every time he gives a prophecy, he wants them to think, okay, think about what I'm telling you. Don't just say, okay, that's something another prophet said, and pass on, pass it, pass it along. Because a lot of times we'll come to church, and I'll come to church, and I'll hear the message and go, oh, that's cool. I'll even take one or two sentences of notes and go, I'll remember that for later. And then that paper, I don't see it again for six months. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at it and consider what God is saying. Does this apply to me? How does this affect my heart? Am I thinking about it? The figure of speech in Hebrew for give careful thought to your ways means what direction, I'm sorry, it means put your heart on the roads. So look at what direction you're heading. That's what the literal translation means. And that's what we need to do is consider the direction we're heading. Verse 6. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now, the cause for their financial and diminished harvest was their wrong priorities. It, it really is that simple. That's what it was this time. It's not always what the case is. But in this case, God says, look, you're suffering financially and in the harvest, and it's because you're not focused. You're not in the right path. And Jesus, actually, in the New Testament, he didn't bring up Haggai, but for those of faith who are on the wrong path, he made sure they knew what the priority was, and that is in Matthew chapter 6. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's the priority, always the priority. Verses 7 through 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Second time he says it. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much. But see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor your hands. So again, they were to give careful direction and that they should change it. Instead of focusing on their personal success, they were to get up and actually get the materials for the temple. Like I said, most people think, well, the materials should have been there. They must have taken them for their own house. So he's telling them this. Now, faith in God's commands should bring us to action, not inaction. We should always be moving forward because if we're not, we're most likely backsliding. There is no neutral ground with God. You're always moving forward. Even if you're inching, you're moving forward. And God doesn't expect anybody to jump forward by leaps and bounds. I mean, there may be some people who do that. I'm not one of those. It's taken me, I am, 
I became a Christian when I was 16. I was raised in the church, but at 16 is when I became a Christian. So I've been a Christian for 22 years. So it's taken me 22 years to get this far. And I've been inching forward. And God doesn't want us to stress out and go, oh, look, you're not like so-and-so. There's a movie I watched when I was a kid. They used to have things called the Disney Sunday movie. And I don't know if they still have that. But one of the movies was called The Richest Cat in the World. And it was a dorky movie. The cat talked. But one thing the cat said that stuck in my mind, I'm taking advice from the cat, it said, it said, inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's very hard. So we're not supposed to take things big chunks at a time. They even tell you, at least at my work, don't make a large goal your first goal. Make a bunch of small goals that lead up to the large one. And that's what we should do. If you're not reading your Bible every day, don't try to read for two hours a day every day. I mean, if you're able to do that, that's fantastic. Uh, I certainly don't have time to do that anymore. But start with 15 minutes in the morning. Read for 15 minutes, pray, and start, start your day. Um, but I don't remember where I was. Anyway, <laughs> start small. And you, that's really where you should start. Now, they had, us, they had a physical drought, but we can have spiritual droughts as well in our life. And they can indicate that there is an area of disobedience. And in this case, there was. They had physical and they had spiritual drought. They had an area of disobedience. This is why, like I said, they were told to consider their ways. And just as Israel had a command to build the temple, then was disobedient to fulfill it. So the same happens to us if we're disobedient. Verse 12. Sorry, verse 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. So within 23 days, the people organized and prepared and then re-began the work of the house of the Lord, the temple. And this is actually a very unique aspect of Haggai. He is one of the few, if not the only prophet except for Jonah, that had a successful ministry. Most times the prophets were despised, jeered at, stoned, persecuted. Jeremiah was actually thrown into a dungeon, waist-deep in sludge. Uh, many were killed. Um, as I mentioned on Thursday, Isaiah was actually sawn in half, according to Jewish tradition, during the reign of King Manasseh. So to be a prophet of the Lord was not a... It was a high calling, but it was often a painful calling. If you wanted to be well-liked, you usually didn't want to be one of the Lord's prophets. And yet Haggai spoke, and the people mobilized in just over three weeks. That's a very big accomplishment. So the application for Judah was, your priorities are wrong. Reorganize them. They were living in comfort while God's house was in ruin. They were putting themselves first and God second. Now for us, we can look at it two ways. I've mentioned one of them already. Physically is we can look at the church. Our church is a continual work in progress. Uh, it's not done. We've been here for eight years. And part of that is certainly fighting city permits and stuff like that. And there's nothing you can do about that. But I remember when we first got to the building, everybody was volunteering. Everybody would come at a certain time in the night. And a lot of this stuff went up fairly quickly. Uh, upper room was done where the youth was going to be as far as painting and light fixtures and everything. The stairs, as Pastor Bill's mentioned, have been on that plan for eight years and they're still not there. And part of that actually is the permits. But 
a lot of times, aside from some volunteers here and there, Pastor Bill actually does most of that work. And unfortunately, there's been days where I know I'm supposed to come and help, and I don't do it. And usually it goes like this. Eric, take your kids and go to the church and help out. Lord, what am I really going to do useful if I take all five kids to church with me? I'm not going to get that much done. And usually he says, well, it's about your faithfulness. And it's about the quality. It's not about the quantity. And you're setting an example for your kids. Or there's the cleaning ministry. A lot of times they need help to clean the church and to get it set up for Sunday. Now, I, I like to be clean. I am a neat freak for my stuff. I have organized bookshelves. I usually know where everything is. And usually I'm like, Lord, I got to get the house clean after I get home. But I'll wait. I'll let your house wait. And that's usually what I do. And I know I'm supposed to come and help. Maybe not every week I'm supposed to come and help, but some, there's weeks where God said, oh, you should go. I'm like, Lord, i got to get up at 3 for work tomorrow. Is that really something you want me to do? Yep. Okay, I'll think about it. And there's times I've been faithful. There's times I haven't. But the times I've been faithful, I am usually not tired the next day. The times I'm not faithful, it doesn't matter if I go to bed early. I'm still really exhausted. I may go home and sit on the couch and pass out and find out my youngest son has taken my phone and redone all the settings, <laughs> which he has done. And I have to give it to my wife to have her figure it out for me because I don't know how to do it. But we've got to be faithful. We've got to make sure that God is the first. He's the priority. Even if it's as simple as coming on Friday night or Thursday night or whatever night the cleaning ministry comes here, if that's what God has called you to do once a month, then that's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. It's whatever the case may be. If you see a ministry that they're talking about in the bulletin, and, you go, and God all of a sudden pricks your heart, that's you. No, 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 no it's not. Uh, trust me, if, if I didn't listen to what God was telling me to do, I certainly wouldn't be standing up here. I'm an introvert. I don't like to be in front of people. Um, and yet... God has taken me out of my comfort zone. And he will do that all through your life. Not because he's trying to be mean, but because he's trying to help you grow. Now, spiritually, I've talked about already. We need to look at our walk. Where is our priority? Are we spending time in the Lord daily in prayer and his word, or are earthly distractions taking that priority? Are we satisfied with the church every Sunday? Maybe we throw in volunteering here and there. What's interesting about Haggai's prophecy is that these people were offering their sacrifices regularly. They were going to their church in a sense, and yet they were actually just going through the motions. And we need to make sure we're not just going through the motions. If any of us are experiencing a spiritual drought because we're not being obedient, we need to consider our ways and the road that our heart is on. And like Judah, when we reassert our priorities, it may be hard, but the same encouragement comes from God. I am with you. And hopefully, like Judah and its leaders, our heart will be stirred to reassess our course. Chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, which is October 17th, and I'm going to a quick side note on this. I like this because a prophecy actually happened on my birthday in the Bible. And so, and when I discovered that when I was studying this, I was like, yeah. I was excited. So every time I, every time I have a birthday now, I think I'm just going to read Haggai. Uh, anyway, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Now, this prophecy occurred on the final day of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which basically celebrates God's provision for Israel when she wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This also was a time they would give thanks for a bountiful harvest. Now, in Ezra, we get some background for the Lord's statement here. And I'm going to read it, Ezra 3.10 through 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood, there, stood in their apparel with trumpets, 
and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So the foundation of the temple was laid, and the young men who had not seen Solomon's temple, they were like, this is great, this is awesome, we've got it done, we've, we're starting. The old men were like, this, this isn't how it was. It was better than this. And they were sad because they knew what it was. So the Lord, it seems like he's rubbing it in, but he's really not. He's saying, doesn't this temple look like nothing? And he's referring to this point in their history where they looked at it and went, and they were mourning over it. But really, he's, re- he's using these three rhetorical questions to remind them. He's <laughs> to remind them and encourage them for the future. Now, he says in verse 4, But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. He says be strong three times. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. He wants them to be strong in the faith. He wants them to look forward. And this is the second time he says, I am with you. So he's basically saying, no, it isn't grand. It doesn't sparkle like the first temple. It's missing the ark among a few other things, but be strong because I'm with you. The temple isn't anything but a nice piece of architecture if God's presence isn't there. And that's basically what he's telling them. It's nice to look at. It's just a building. And even when we make this church the way it should look, if we're not here fellowshipping and learning about God's word, then it's really just a building. It's nice to look at because we did a good job, but it's just a building. Verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Verse 6 through 9, actually. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will come once more and shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So there's two parts to this prophecy. He's speaking to them directly here. He's saying, look, I'm going to shake heavens and earth. He's basically going to bring down some nations. He's going to lift up the nations up. Now, when that happens, the desire of all nations, which was known by the Jewish rabbis and the early church as the Messiah, was going to come to the temple. So he's saying, look, Yeah, this new built temple, it doesn't sparkle like Solomon's. But the Messiah didn't walk in that temple. He is going to walk in this one. And Zerubbabel's temple is the temple that Herod the Great decided to remodel and reconstruct. And apparently it was so fantastic a reconstruction, some people considered it better than Solomon's temple. But that wasn't even why it was great. It was great. It was better because Christ walked there. And when it talks about the glory the house being filled with glory. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the glory of the Father. He entered there. What's also interesting is this temple didn't have an ark, yet the ark is a, it's symbolic of Christ. The ark is where they went to God when their sins were atoned for, and Christ is how we get to the Father. What's also interesting about the ark is it was pure gold, when it, the light shined on it, it was brilliant. It, had, it, was, there was, it was glorious to look at. Yet they had a covering for it. And the covering, it was bland. It was like dark brown, reddish animal skin. And it covered the ark. 
And Jesus, the glory of the Father, came down in human, bland human form, for lack of a better term. And that's a, a nice picture there, that Jesus came down to the temple uh, in humble human form. Now, like a lot of God's prophecies, when God, oh, let me back up for a second. When God does prophecy, he does it progressively. We didn't get all 60 or all 39 books of the Old Testament at once. They started at Genesis and they worked forward to, I think Chronicles is actually technically the last book in the Jewish uh, Bible. But the first book of the Messiah, the first prophecy of the Messiah is Genesis 3.15. And then we find out later that the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of Abraham, then the lineage of Judah, and then the lineage of David later. And Isaiah, we get even more prophecies. In Micah, we learn he's going to be born in Bethlehem. In God's revelation, his prophecies, they're progressive. We slowly learn more and more about him. And a lot of times you look at a prophecy in the Old Testament, and there is a direct application for them at the time. Yet a lot of time it foreshadows a future prophecy of something God's going to do. And when it says, I'm going to shake the heaven and earth, that's the only time in the New Testament where Haggai is quoted from Paul. And Paul uses it in a future sense, and it has to do with the judgment that God's going to bring in Revelation. So that's a a little bit of a future that we're not going to jump into that, but that's kind of what he's leaning toward. There's that present, and then he leans toward the future. Now, this prophecy summed up is, God is saying, why are you crying? The temple's really not anything. I'm here with you. Be encouraged with that. And he's saying, don't belittle this temple. The Messiah, the desire of all nations, is going to come here. You need to be encouraged with that. And he's also saying, don't just look to the past. Look at what I'm doing right now and in the future and take comfort with that. A lot of times we get stuck in the past. I can't believe I've done this. I I don't know what I can do now. And God says, don't worry about that. Paul said, I don't look behind, I look forward. And that's a paraphrase. I forget exactly how he says it, but he's not dwelling on the past. He's moving forward to what God has Verses 10 through 12. On the 24th day of the ninth month, and this is December 18th, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Basically, he's saying, if you have a piece of holy meat and it touches something unclean, does that make the unclean thing holy? No, it doesn't. Because holiness can't be passed on by a tradition or a ritual. Uh, Ceremonial cleanness, which is what they would call it, cannot be transferred. Then in verse 13 and 14, Haggai says, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. So even though holiness can't be passed on, corruption and pollution can be. You can look at it this way. You can't get well by being around someone who has the measles. But but someone who doesn't have the measles can get the measles by being next to someone who does. Sickness is transferred. Health is not. On the same principle, living in the Holy Land and offering sacrifices didn't make this people acceptable to God. As long as they were unclean through the neglect of the house of the Lord. So if the priorities, again, of our heart are wrong, nothing we do is really going to be holy to God. The priorities have to be in place first. So even though they'd been bringing offerings, their sin had caused their offering to be contaminated. So when we come to church, it really shouldn't be out of habit. But... As mentioned, it should be in faith with him, to commune with him, learn his word, and apply it. When I, um, there's a good example here, too. When Israel first got back, they were excited. Before they hit the slump with the uh, trials, they were excited. They were building the temple, and we saw the young men excited at the foundation being laid. They were trying to get everything done, but then they hit the trial in that slump. Now, usually when we first become a Christian, we get saved, 
we're excited. We take a lot of notes. We're always paying attention. But after a while, a lot of times you get to a lull, and you get used to the schedule. Oh, church is at 9.30. I can probably leave at 9.25 and just miss a little bit worship. You know, you get into a slump. You get into the pattern. When I first became a Christian in high school, I was, I was very much on fire. I read at least seven chapters of the Bible a day. I had made it a goal when I was in 11th grade, I'm going to read through the Bible. So I'd wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning. I would read two chapters. I would exercise. I would eat. I would walk to school. When school was over, I'd walk home, and then I would close my door. Before I did my homework, I'd read five chapters. And I, I read through the Old Testament in about seven months. And I was very much on fire at the time. And I went to every youth group. There was a study Thursday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I went to every event. The youth group was in a classroom at the time because the, the church was also had a school there. So I'd pull one of the school desks out, and I'd put it in front of me, and it was easier to take notes. And I was that way for probably five years. And by the time I was done, I had probably this much notes at least that I was able to find. And I wish I had kept them because I would like to see what I thought at the time. But I was very much on fire. But now when I come to church, I don't take notes as much. I do take notes, and I try to look for specifically what God... I don't, and admittedly, I took notes randomly. I was like, oh, that sounds good, and I would write something down. Or I might get lost in a thought, and there'd be like half a note, and then hopefully it would come to me later. But now I, I listen to Pastor Bill, or I listen to whoever on the radio, and I go, okay, what is the nugget that God wants me to take out of this. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to stay on fire, stay looking for what he wants to teach us. I'm not saying you have to be an avid note taker, but you do need to come to church expecting God to speak to you. Those things that touch your heart are what you should write down and apply. And don't, like I said, don't just tuck it away like I do sometimes and find it six months later. Go home and review it, what he spoke to you. And we don't get clean by coming to church and doing good things. We get clean by coming to Jesus in faith and making him a priority in our life. Verses 15 to 19. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid upon another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to heap to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. And this is God showing what the result was of their wrong priority. At the time, and we saw in chapter 1, they were trying to reap a harvest, but it seemed like it wasn't there. Actually, we can see from this that 50 to 60% of their expected harvest wasn't there. So they were not being blessed because their priorities were wrong. And God did do this to try to drive it them back to him. And a lot of times that's what trials are meant to do. They're either meant to strengthen us or drive us back to him where we belong in the first place. Verses 20 to 22. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And this speaks of shaking heaven and earth. Again, God's judgments on various governments and peoples through history. And this eventually culminates in the final judgment right before the second coming of Christ. And that's really what I'm going to say about that. Now, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, the signet ring was the token of royal authority, just like a scepter was or a crown or a throne. Now, he says, I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. Now, what was special about Zerubbabel? Well, he actually was truly chosen of God because 
he was the last person to stand to be in both the line of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly parents. He was right in the middle. After that, it differed on the, uh, it differed after that. That was for two reasons. One was they needed a royal line for Jesus to be king of Israel. And he got that actually through Zerubbabel. Because Zerubbabel was, sorry, was the last uh, royal leader technically of Israel. He was not a king, but he was the accepted leader. And Jeconiah, who was the last official recognized king of Judah, was his grandfather. Now, in addition to that, there are several Bible scholars who believe that Zerubbabel, as well as David, are going to be resurrected from the dead and share delegated authority with David in the millennial kingdom. Now, that is a lofty theological idea, which is above me. I've read that, and it's interesting. I know that Jesus is going to reign in the millennial kingdom, and there certainly seem to be several passages in the Old Testament that say David and Zerubbabel will be also reigning under him in that kingdom. That is something I will let you study, um, as I will study it later as, as well. So what I want you to take away from this is to consider the way we're going. Is our priority, is the Lord our priority, or is he a Sunday hobby? Are we following the command he's given us or going our own direction because obedience is too difficult right now? Is our faith in God bringing out proper action? We need to remember we're not holy simply by coming through that door in the morning, Sunday morning. We need to make sure we don't get in a slump and that we're always considering our ways. Every decision we make sometimes, we need to consider if we're doing the right thing. Is this the direction God has for me? And while prioritizing God will not necessarily give you monetary prosperity, it will give you a prosperous spiritual life because he's first. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And the theme of Haggai truly is prioritizing you in our life, Lord. It shows us the positive of putting you first and the negative of making you a sidecar when you should be driving. Lord, help us to put you first in everything that we do. No matter how difficult the trial, Lord, if you've given us something to do, help us to fulfill it. And help us to lean on you for those things. It's not in our ability, Lord, but the ability which you provide. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.